everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Uh, wanted to let you know before you listen to this great podcast with my friend Giorgio Angelini uh, that we are going to be doing a gathering in Southern California, in the city of Santa Ana. And as part of that gathering, we are going to be showing this film, uh, the film we're going to talk about today, the film Owned a Tale of Two Americas. Save the date, December 5th. Uh, this is again in Santa Ana, California. Put it on your calendar. Put it in in like highlight. You're not going to want to miss it. Uh, we're going to have details on our website very soon on how you can get signed up and, and reserve your space. So see you all in Santa Ana and enjoy this podcast. The epiphany that came to me was that like an urban uprising in Baltimore and those abandoned homes in Inland Empire are actually two sides of the same coin. And that like the same moment in time in American history actually created these two issues. And and the lament on my part was that we didn't look at the housing crisis as a time to really right these wrongs, which are still very much embedded in, I would argue, the, the uh, struggles that we have politically today. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. You know, I don't know how long ago it was, a few years ago now, maybe, maybe longer. I got this email in my inbox. Uh, hey, I'm, a, I'm Giorgio Angelini. I'm doing a movie. Would you like to be in it? Or something along those lines. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is a hoax. This is, not, this is not real. I think he followed up again a little bit later, like, seriously, I'd like to talk to you. And I responded, and now we're sitting here in the summer of 2019. There's this fantastic movie called Owned, A Tale of Two Americas that you can go watch right now, pretty much on any streaming platform you want. And I have the guy behind this movie on the line with me today, Giorgio Angelini, calling from California. Welcome, Giorgio. Nice to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I mean, even though it's been a while since we've talked, I feel like we're friends because we spent quite a bit of time together. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about doc filmmaking is it's a it's a really complicated way to make friends with people. It is. It's it's kind of weird because I've done you know many many interviews, but when you do something like what we did, you guys actually embedded with me for like a few days. You hung out with me and traveled around with me. It was kind of fun. Yeah, and it's really been incredible to see how Strong Towns has grown in all that time. I mean, when we first filmed with you, I remember the, there was one event in Corcoran. Uh-huh. There was only a few people there. I just thought, gosh, you know, I know I'm up, I know I'm up against this. I'm up against this uh, insane idea of making a movie by myself and wondering if anyone's going to watch it. But this guy actually knows what he's doing, and he's got a really big heart. And, you know, I hope this works out for him. This guy's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> When I was watching, when I was watching the the film, you had that scene from that meeting, and here's the funny thing: at the time, I was really happy because our crowds were growing; they were a lot bigger than they had been, and uh, I was feeling all this momentum. Of course, what was that like three years ago, four years ago? Today, it's it's huge compared to that. Oh yeah. And uh, I was looking at that film, going, "Oh my gosh, that room is so empty." <laughs> <laughs> 
But it fit the narrative because I think the point was right. And this woman asked this question at the end of your yeah. lecture, like, you know, with all these problems, like, look, no one from planning is here. No, no one is here to talk about these issues. And I thought that was a really, it was a really powerful image, but, um, my touring band side of my life, like very much sympathized with you because <laughs> there's definitely been plenty of times where we play like a, we would play one city to a great packed crowd. And then there's always the, the ego drainer <laughs> the next night. We had this saying, cause I, I did the same thing. I was, I don't think I was as uh, professional as you, but we, we did a little bit touring in bands that I played in. And we had this saying that we'd say, it's like, Play every night like it's Shea Stadium. So if like two people are there, you got to go all out. And that's kind of been my motto too with the the talks. But I don't want to talk about me as much as I want to get into this film. So I want to start with your inspiration because you came to me with this idea. And I don't know where I was in, in, in the process of you developing this idea, but I know I was nowhere near the end because it changed a lot. What was the thing that kind of got you boy, this is a topic that's really interesting and documentary filmmaking is, is, is going to be my, my way of expressing this interest. Oddly, it does start with touring and bands. I was touring pretty heavily for about five years, living in New York, touring with two different bands, spending about, you know, half the year on the road. You know, it was a great way to, to see the country and in some cases see the world, but uh, really got to visit almost every single lower 48 state and you know as is the case with like smallish dirtbag bands you you, you play in <laughs> you're not playing shea stadium you're playing <laughs> you're, you tend to be playing in like dive bars and stuff that are in you know gentrifying neighborhoods and so it, looking back kind of reflectively it was kind of an interesting way to look, see how development was working because over the course of five years especially like in places like dc and stuff were the same neighborhoods we used to play back then that were, you know, predominantly black neighborhoods, for example, are now just completely gentrified. And at the time, the housing crisis happened, and it actually had a really profound negative effect on on touring. So where we could once tour and get guarantees every night, there's basically no money to pay bands. <laughs> All the opportunities dried up, and I was kind of sitting there at 28 years old, kind of wondering what I was going to do with my life and like, was that I really, was I building towards anything? And so my mother, who was also an architect sort of suggested that I go to architecture school and not necessarily specifically to be an architect, but because architecture school is kind of a great, it's a great way to learn about process and creativity in, in the abstract. And let me pause you here because uh, there's a whole bunch of architects and other professionals in our audience that are going, yeah, 2008 was a great year to go to architecture school. <laughs> <laughs> the future looked really bright. <laughs> no, totally. But it, I mean, it was like the most competitive year because of course I, have, <laughs> I wasn't the only person who had that bright idea. So uh, luckily I, I got into rice and it overlapped with rice getting a new Dean uh, Sarah Whiting, who's, I have to say, like hugely influential in shaping the way I kind of think about architecture and politics in the world. And it was a really interesting time to be in architecture school because, of course, you have architects who basically don't have as much work as they used to and they had to supplement their income. And so the net benefit to students was that we were getting these incredible architectural minds touring the, the lecture circuit and really having an open and honest conversation about you know, both architecture's role in the creation of the crisis, but also 
a kind of like come back to Jesus moment of like architecture is about culture and humanity and like what is our what is our role in getting us out of this crisis and I, I sort of took that conceit seriously and I'd always right. been interested in film it's just admittedly a very decadent and absurd idea to like say I'm going to be a director there's not really a clear path on how to do that but with that in mind I kind of got a grant to take photographs of this abandoned McMansion development in Inland Empire California my last year while I was in grad school all I knew was like the what the Google Street View was showing me which was a lot of carnage on the streets just sort of half-built mansions i flew out there to take these photographs and it was a really really transformative experience for me and it was just miles and miles of just abandoned homes like no one was there it was like a ghost town you could see like it was almost as if like there had been an apocalypse zombie attack and like people like left their tools and the tyvek wrap was flapping in the wind and but otherwise was like this incredibly beautiful landscape of like high desert plains and the the development had just been printed out across the the landscape and then up and over this mountainside and i was following the road following these how one house after another and i came across this one that was kind of precariously placed on the edge of this cliff face overlooking this really beautiful vista of like a lake and these high desert mountains and like the only window that was facing this incredible view was like this tiny little bathroom window in the garage. I've seen houses like that too. And you're like, what mindless like industry does something like this, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could just sort of see exactly. You could see the mindlessness in the operation and it really was a, it felt like palpably alienating and like, what are, what are we building here? Like what, all, all the only human intervention it could have taken to like transform this single house's experience is just rotating the plan 90 degrees. And, you know, it's just completely intentionless development. And, you know, I have to also say like what I witnessed there too was not just these abandoned homes, but sitting alongside this development was just miles and miles of charred remains of orange groves. And it was a really striking image to kind of see two commodities in limbo, right? Like you could see the previous commodity, which was oranges, and then the new one, which was like an air-conditioned square foot. And you could see these machinations happening in someone's brain where they're like, well, a bushel of oranges costs this much, is worth this much, but like an air-conditioned square foot is worth like 50% more. So let's just flip them. And like that was the level of intentionality. Right. <laughs> so It's the next cash crop. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You grew up in Houston. I mean, you had to see some of this there, right? Oh, yeah. I had the experience you're having in Las Vegas, where in 2009 or 10, I was traipsing through the apocalypse, basically. I think the stark contrast you, you draw with the orange groves, it is this notion that when someone's dropping down half a million dollars, three quarters of a million dollars on a house or more in, in an empire in some cases you would think that a lot more thought went into it, right? Right. I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. But also you, you see, I mean, to me as an architect, thinking about like, what is a house supposed to be? Like, what is home ownership supposed to be? What is the role a home plays in a person's life, in a city's life, in a community's life? This relationship of like the orange 
to the square foot really kind of reinforced this idea that of how far we had come that the home had really just become this globally traded commodity. And it was, it was a really alienating experience and it made me really <laughs> depressed, but also made me think that there was a bigger story to tell there. And, and it was one, the original conceit of the film. And when I talked to you, it was really about this relationship between commoditization and design. And it was going to be more of like a, an architecture and design film. The first time we, we got together, you came out here in the beautiful weather we were having. I think it was, tw- I think it was 20 some below. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was it your crew from California too? I remember they were. Yeah, uh, I was terrible. <laughs> there was one moment I think my uh, cinematographer, I thought got was going to lose a finger, but uh-huh. it, <laughs> we did some rough shooting. I think the, the craziest one is we were heading from my hometown here in Brainerd to one of the meetings that, that you were following me at. And you said you want to get a picture of me driving. And I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, they, you asked me to do some weird things. And I'm like, you know, they were all things that I normally did, but I'm like, why would you want a picture of me driving? I saw it in the film. It was great. Um, <laughs> but I think people should know when they see that, that first of all, it's 20 below. So it's cold. And it's you guys hanging out the window of a car, <laughs> driving next to me with a film, like shooting me driving. And my thought is like, act as normal as possible. Act as normal as possible. Because I didn't want to make you guys like have to reshoot and reshoot and reshoot. But <laughs> those were the things you were doing, right? Yeah, whatever it takes to get the shot. <laughs> so we went through and we had our time together. But then you went on to other places. And I think beyond the... The realtor, um, boy, what was that guy's name? Jim? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who's my favorite character in the movie, by the way. I, I thought he was hilarious. I want to come back to him. But you kept going along this path and something changed or something broadened your perspective or your scope of this film. Can you talk a little bit about that transition? Because I think it's profound. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of doc filmmaking is that you start with one intention and then you know, as is the case with most independently financed documentary films, it takes a really long time to make. And in that time, history changes around you. And so coming out of the quote unquote recovery from the crash, we started to see urban uprisings in places like Ferguson and, and, and Baltimore city. And I don't know, it just became really clear that this film if it was going to be a kind of indictment of the way that we develop suburbs and homes in America, or if it was going to be a kind of ethnography on home ownership, we really had to like broaden the scope and understand that the epiphany that came to me was that like an urban uprising in Baltimore and those abandoned homes in Inland Empire are actually two sides of the same coin. And that like the same moment in time in American history actually created these two issues. And, and, and the lament on my part was that we didn't sort of look at the housing crisis as a time to really right these wrongs, which are still very much embedded in, I would argue that the uh, struggles that we have politically today. Talk a little bit about the New York experience. Cause I, I, I think it's, it's both in a way unique, but it's also kind of indicative of, of a broader narrative. And, and the guys you ran into who had experienced Levittown, and just how their narrative kind of paralleled this one year we're trying to get to. This is a particularly special moment in the in the making of the film because it's really what kind of brought about this shift in thinking about how to make the film. But 
through mutual friends, I was introduced to this guy, Jimmy, who's a retired Nassau County police officer. Of course, his name is Jimmy, too. Jimmy, right? yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jimmy, Tony, the whole crew, uh, really salt of the earth people. And I, I visited with them and they're, they're all retired police officers. You know, they all track pretty parallel stories in their life. They all grew up originally until they were like early teens. They grew up in New York City proper and they all came from neighborhoods like South Bronx, Brownsville, Queens, Bed-Stuy, all these neighborhoods that we sort of consider today to be historically black neighborhoods. But at that time around World War II and before, they were quite integrated neighborhoods. But they all, you know, coming out of World War II, their their parents took advantage of the GI Bill and, and the other sort of mechanisms that were helping people move out to these newly created suburbs. And I don't know, in a kind of strange irony, they all became cops and then came back to the very same neighborhoods that they grew up in, but now to police them. And, you know, this, of course, is 30 years after divestment from these neighborhoods and, and the sort of carnage that was inflicted on these neighborhoods. And it was really profound to see their experience because Jimmy says pretty early on in the film, like, Levittown is a great, a great place. You know, it's this, it's a blue collar town. It's uh it's the heartbeat of America. And, you know, in many ways he's right, but even he had, you know, readily admits that it was also racially restrictive and he really laments that history and is, you know, really sad that, that it went down that way. But yeah, so there's this kind of interesting recognition from them. They had sort of introduced this idea to me and I felt ignorant and stupid for not really knowing that history so well. It did feel like, like you say, very blue collar place, right? And so what you're getting is not the kind of intellectual take on redlining and structural race. You're getting a very like, they didn't let black people in. And I feel bad about that, but hey, you know, it's worked out. You know, it's a nice place. And you see that kind of, I'm going to call it this and I want you to push back and give it your own words. But there's this um, sense that like, this is not right, but yet the forces making it not right are bigger than me. And so I've just kind of had to accept it. Push me in a different direction on that. Is that what you got out of it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think there's something very American. I mean, it's probably a base, basic human trait, but I think it's especially amplified in America. Like everyone wants to feel like they got where they are in life through their own hard work and determination. And no one wants to ever feel like they got a handout, but there has to be some sort of reckoning at some point in our history here and moving forward that like, you know, a certain group of people received a absolutely transformative subsidy from the government that, that changed not only their lives, but their children's lives and, and, and radiates on exponentially from there. And that's like the opportunity to own a home and, and all the benefits that come with, with that. And, it just so happened, uh, again, this is sort of like the, the beauty, the accidental beauty of making a documentary, but it just happened to be that while we were filming with them, the, the Freddie Gray uprising in Baltimore was going on. And so I'd spent about two days or three days with them. When we weren't talking about Levittown, they were just obsessed with talking about what was happening in Baltimore. And they're all veterans as well of Vietnam war, but they're like, you know, we went, we went to the war to, to fight for your freedom. And I, I, your right to protest is really important to me, but you know, how can you burn your own neighborhood down? And they kept on kind of repeating this refrain. And, and it occurred to me that that was like a really important 
question for this film to answer, or at least attempt to answer for, for people like Jimmy, which is like, why would you burn your own neighborhood down? Because I think it gets to the root of our impasse right now politically. And that's, that's what took me to, to Baltimore is to answer that question for Jimmy. Let's talk a little bit about Baltimore. The character you have there, Greg, is a fascinating one. Your job is to bring out these interesting characters. I don't know if we call him typical. I, I think he's maybe atypical. He's, he's a cool guy. He's got a lot going on. But his narrative about a neighborhood that really... Here's the thing I've always found fascinating about Baltimore. If you go listen to The Architects, and you go listen to you know my friends in the in the new urbanism and, and other places where we do urban planning, and you ask them what does a good neighborhood have? It has houses that are built in a certain way. They're built up to the street. They've got corner stores. You've got and they'll go through all the things. And then you go to these hard neighborhoods in Baltimore, and they have all those things, but there's something else going on. Can you talk a little bit about what you experienced in Baltimore and about Greg and his story and? Uh, why you included that in the film? Yeah. So I, I went to Baltimore with the intention of really answering that question that Jimmy posed, but not really having a character to film. And that's kind of, that's probably the most difficult part of any documentary is trying to find the most compelling characters to, to tell this story. Um, so I was doing research in the city through a mutual friend who's an organizer down there. And I had never really spent that much time in Baltimore. So it was also just really experiencing the city for the, first time in a meaningful way. I think if everyone in America visited Baltimore, I think they would understand a reality that is much more common than people want to believe. And I think like you're saying is it has on paper has all the elements that you would want for a thriving city. But what's missing is, is the intentionality from government and investment and what makes a neighborhood, you know, it's like something Greg mentions a lot in his life. You know, he's when we filmed with him, he was 24 but, you know, he talked about having moved like, you know, 12 or 15 times as a kid and like what that does to your psyche and your inability to put down roots. And what Baltimore City really shows is like it's not a neighborhood if you don't have a stake in it. Right. So you have people who didn't have access historically to loans, so they don't have ownership in their city. And then the businesses, of course, are not owned by anyone locally. So it almost feels like a stranger in your own town. And that kind of transience and impermanence has a profound impact on people's psyche and it's hard to like quantify these things i mean it was it is and it isn't it's very easy to quantify it in a certain way but it's also hard to sort of quantify it emotionally um and what that does to someone's spirit and so yeah and finding greg was just an incredible story because he brought to life these issues in such a beautiful way and then on top of all that like two days into filming with him, I find out that he's also working for his uncle as a, as a house flipper. And so I thought that like, wow, what a, what an incredible irony to all this. It feels like the Baltimore story is the end point where instead of the Inland Empire, where housing is the, you know, oranges are the commodity and then housing is the commodity. It, it feels like when you get to Baltimore, the neighborhood particularly that you were in, it's like people become, the commodity to grind down, you know, like how do we, how do we extract what little remaining wealth and dignity there is here in this larger machine? And I, I feel like you touched on that. I mean, I feel like you got to that, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in in some sense that they're both issues of speculation, but the the net effects are completely different, right? And in Inland Empire, it's about speculation, but it's about building, you know, homes that are as large as possible because the mindset is, you know, if a if an air conditioned square foot is worth two hundred dollars a square foot, then it stands to reason that you just cram as many of those square feet on a plot as possible, and then, bam, there you go. You have that value of a home is there, but of course, it's a, it's more complicated than that, and in Baltimore, you're struck by how many vacant homes there are block by block, but all those homes are owned by people. They're owned by speculators who are basically sitting on the property and some of them are left vacant or some of them are rented and kept in pretty dilapidated states. But the end goal there for the ownership class there is to is to sit on it until the opportunity arises to either redevelop an entire block or an entire neighborhood or sell to John Hopkins or there's just a thousand different ways that, that, that the speculation game is going on there. But, but at the, you know, at the same time, there's a community of people there's living people, there. There's humans trying to survive. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, they're both kind of mirrors of each other and a really, really cruel reflection of each other. So Jim in Inland Empire, the realtor you were chatting with, I couldn't figure out, I liked him. Like I say, he's, I think he's my favorite character in the movie. I liked him a lot. I couldn't figure out whether he thought it was a game. He kind of knew that this was all messed up, but he also had to be like the player in the game, right? What was looking at life through his eyes for a while? What was that like? I mean, it's funny because he was the first person I filmed with starting this project. I think in many ways he's kind of, he's kind of a metaphor for America and like how we view these issues. And, and like you were saying earlier, it's like there's a system that's so big and how, how can you affect it just as one person? And I think in my opinion, Jim is this realtor who can, he can only affect the culture so much, but he sees injustice around him and he sees, he sees the net cultural benefit in home ownership. And he really, he really cares about putting people in the right home, but he sees all these sort of negative internal inputs that are that are going into the process and he's kind of trying to fight against it he's trying to fight against especially around the the crisis the sort of rampant fraud that was going in short sales and and all this kind of stuff and i don't know he has kind of a more human perspective on what the role of the realtor is and like really being an agent for your client uh versus what i would argue you know real estate brokerage is often becomes just kind of a I don't know. I, I actually, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to go off on a tangent here because it just happened this week and it was really, it was a really profound experience, but I was in Austin last week filming for this other documentary that's not housing related, but I was staying with my friend in East Austin, which is this rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. And this new, new construction was going up next door to him. And there was an open house happening the day I was there. And I get a knock on this door and this real estate broker is there and he's, He's like, hey, my name's Tom. Uh, I'm the I'm I'm the agent next door. I was like, oh, hi, how's it going? He's like, do you live here? And I'm like, no, I'm kind of here with my friend, but he's gone. He's like, well, do you know anything about this neighborhood? And I was like, what? <laughs> he's like, yeah, do you know? Well, can you tell me about the neighborhood? I'm doing an open house here tomorrow, and uh, I don't really know much about it. Like, is it a cool neighborhood? Like, uh, what are the schools like? And I'm just like, I just you know, jaws on the floor. Like, where do you live? He's like, oh, I live in Lugerville, which is like an hour away from Austin. I don't know. It was just, 
it really like I, I took every ounce of <laughs> of of uh patience to just not scream at him but it's like the just the disrespect for your own discipline and the disrespect for the neighborhood it's just i don't know it it, it really was um it was really a sad experience <laughs> and so that's sort of like the nature of real estate brokers that jim exists in and jim is kind of like a ex-punk rock guy you know he's a big fan of x and he sort of carries with him that punk rock ethos into real estate brokerage. And uh, I guess in his small way, he 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 has a blog and he's trying to educate people on how to not get ripped off. And and his clientele are really diehard fans of his because I think they see him as trying to correct the course that is maybe he's he's evidence that you can affect change in the system, right? Let me ask you this because you talk about the realtor coming to the door and, and asking you the question and. I'm guessing 10 years ago, you would have uh, heard that question much differently and probably re responded much differently. How has this putting this together and, and going on this journey uh, affected the way you look at the world and affected you? Like, what have you learned in this process that's changed you? I mean, when I started the film, I was, you know, it was in the middle of coming out of the, of the housing crisis. I think I had a really uh, cynical view of homeownership. And in coming out the other side, and especially my experience with Greg, I came to realize that like that, at least for me, that 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 idea was also like a really privileged idea in a weird way. And that that ownership is profoundly important to an organized society and that ownership is a, is a good thing. It's just about the system in which ownership exists. And to kind of step out more globally here, like in this kind of current political situation we're in, I just realized how much of it is tied to housing policy and this, this agreement, this social contract that the U S government made with a large portion of, of the country after the war, that this, this agreement has sort of fallen apart and no one's kind of stopped to recognize that that's kind of what's behind so much of this anxiety and so much of this unrest is just, it's housing policy. It all comes back to our neighborhoods and to our homes and, and the role that home plays in, in organized society. It's just all out of whack. I watched this, this discussion too, kind of parallel with you and to see it in the film, the, the, this idea that on one hand, housing was this path towards wealth creation and independence and prosperity for, you know, a part of the population. And then to watch in the movie like that, basically get undermined and taken away, you know, like, like that, that was not real. But then you have this other part of the population that was in a sense, like denied that opportunity and they've suffered greatly too. And, and the remedy for that is what to include them now in the hoax, you know, like there's a lot of futility to it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's been a real struggle because, you know, in screening this film and film festivals and, it's almost always the case that the first question people ask is like, what's the solution? And that's the conundrum that I face is just exactly what you just said. And it's also confronting this, this conclusion that I've come to, which is that homeownership is good. And then it's like, well, then how, how can we create a system that both promotes homeownership, but also removes the pernicious externalities of commoditization which in turn, I think, teases out all the negative cultural baggage, right? Like if, if you come into a system thinking that the primary role of a home is to accrue value, 
then by its very nature, it's just going to tease out the worst aspects of, of our culture. Because if you're just vehemently defending your home's ability to accrue value, it's just going to, you're going to have on the economic side, these kinds of uh, predatory lending practices. And on the cultural side, it's going to tease out these kinds of really horrible racist perspectives that like, uh, you know, moving African-American families in your neighborhood or immigrant families in your neighborhood is going to bring your property values down, which is not something that's supported by data. <laughs> it's a cultural problem. It seems like there's this dichotomy, this push and pull between the idea that the more we localize things, the more patriarchal and racist and, and, and bigoted they can become because essentially larger institutions can override some of that. Yet you've kind of shown here, and, and I've experienced this too, that these larger systems have their own kind of form of grinding people up and, and tyranny. I, I've been confronted with this idea as well. It's like, what is the solution? And I, I don't have the answer. I mean, I, I really struggle with that. I've tended to kind of migrate more towards localization. As you're standing in Baltimore, if capital came less out of Wall Street and more out of the local bank, is this a, is this a more despotic situation for Baltimore or is this a less despotic situation for Baltimore? I think it has to be twofold. I mean, I think the federal government has to confront this very recent history, by the way, I think a lot of times people people feel really uneasy talking about the federal government, sort of the quote unquote social engineering. But it's like <laughs> the social engineering has been going on for decades. It's what got us here in the first place. One thing has to be a government sort of correcting that mistake and and uh, giving people access to submarket loans in the same way they did before. Uh, people who were denied those originally, they have to be given access to to money that wasn't there before. And I don't know, I think I would be, I'm really interested in the idea of cooperative land trusts and this idea of, you know, like if you want to own a home, you basically can only play in the casino, right? There's not a system, it exists in small pockets like in New York and other places, but it's not, it's by no means like a regular, normalized across the country, but you should be able to buy a home and, and make the decision of whether or not you want to own a home in a speculative market or in a cooperative market, meaning you should be able to own a home in a system where in a land trust type situation where if you want a home and treat it more like a piggy bank versus uh, an IRA, you know, that when you sell it, you, you pull out what you put in, right? That they sort of takes, it takes speculation out of the system. And I think by its very nature of taking speculation out of the system, it has a net effect of, of calming some of these more uh, pernicious negative cultural aspects of home ownership, right? I think, I think those two are really tightly coupled. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally hear you. Did, did you watch the film, The Big Short? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I love it. Weren't there moments in that where it just, having the inside kind of knowledge that you had just triggered something that you looked around the theater and like maybe other people didn't grasp? Totally. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so layered. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I kudos to him to he really did a great job of trying to like uh, make a really complicated topic interesting. But yeah, I always wonder how people walk away from a film like that, wondering, you know, what their what their experience of their neighborhood is like after. I was thinking that. about you actually in in the one scene where the the two guys from the hedge fund head down to Florida, and they're going door to door talking to people, 
And, you know, they, they run the one guy and he's like, Hey, I'm paying my rent. You know, they're like, well, your house is in foreclosure. And he's like, it's not me. It's the guy. And then they turn around the, yeah. the alligator in the pool. And uh-huh. yeah, like I'm thinking that <laughs> that's Giorgio right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it gets to your point about lo- localism in a way. Right. I mean, the issue is, you know, and you can look at it in purely supply and demand related ways, right? You, you, we have a system like in New York, which I'm pretty familiar with in terms of the real estate market there. We have a system where local demand is competing with global investment demand and it throws these things completely out of whack. If you're a developer in New York and, and some of this is cooling a little bit now, but certainly for the last 15 years, if, if you're a developer and you actually have a site that you're able to acquire you know, they, they talk about this term, the highest and best use. So like, what's the highest and best use for this, for this piece of property? It's not to build a rental building. It's to build a condo building for the global elite. Right. And so that's where all the money flows to. And that's where all the biggest developers congregate around are these kinds of tentpole projects where you're building basically vacant, (laughs) like air conditioned volumetric square footage that it's really just being treated like an annuity or something, you know, and there's something impossibly alienating about that. And it gets away from this very basic supply and demand problem, right? Like how can you compete as, and it sets, of course it sets into motion all these, these big issues that, that Brooklyn's and Queens are facing with now, right. With gentrification and neighborhoods, ironically, like, like Bed-Stuy, where Jimmy from Levittown grew up, they're going through huge upheaval in gentrification and, and people are local people there are being displaced by people who used to live in Manhattan, a professional class of people who themselves are being pushed out of Manhattan because of like this global <laughs> global wealth that's pushing them out. So it, it's uh, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. This is where I've struggled because I tend to be like a market-oriented kind of person and I, I'm evolving in a sense, but I, I used to really believe that, you know, the market system that we had in this country would meet demands. And what we see in the housing market is that we're really good at meeting. And this is kind of ironic as well, but we're really good at meeting one set of demands. Um, but there's all this other demand in the market that's just being ignored. And, and it's, it's not being ignored because the demand isn't there. The demand is huge. Uh, it's being ignored because the money to be made is is elsewhere. Instead of the wealthy, the wealthiest, getting this highly customized product that you would think like the well, you know, the wealthy person would get. The the poor person eats the manufactured McDonald's hamburger, and the wealthy person gets the filet mignon prepared by the, uh, you know, the great chef who goes over every little bit, you know, whatever. We're now feeding the wealthy basically like McDonald's kind of housing. I mean, we're feeding them like commodities. That's the most bizarre thing to me is that this whole McDonald's market is not being met, even though there's huge demand and the wealthy are now getting fed McDonald's. And, and that's somehow looked at by everybody as like normal. I, I, I don't know. Go ahead. No, no, I know. I mean, that's, that's sort of what the original version of the film was about, right? It's like the, the inherent cheapness of, of materialism and how it kind of manifests in, in housing and like this sort of cultural way in which we define value, right? Like leading up to the crash, there was this one, uh, data point that I think really gets at the core of this in a way. And it's, it's a 1940 
this, and I might be wrong about this. So if you're listening to this and you want to correct me, <laughs> but Go for roughly, it. roughly it's, uh, in 1940, like the size, the average size of the family was like roughly 3.5 people. And the house was roughly a thousand square feet. So you have three and a half people living a thousand square feet. You fast forward to 2010, the size of the family has dropped by a whole human. So 2.5 people, but now living in close to 3000 square feet. So you have like fewer people living in more square footage. And I don't know, the more you sit with that number, the more you start to really understand that like the, the value system behind what a home's purpose in your life has really transformed greatly. And I think that cheapness that you're describing is really indicative of a system that, that overwhelmingly values a home as a commodity. And the only way for commodities to sort of define that value is in, is in, is volumetrically, right? It's like more square feet equals more value because calculating like, how do you, how do the siblings get along? How do you get along with your neighbors? What kind of relationships are you building with your neighborhood? How, you know, all these other things are much more ephemeral and more difficult to calculate on, on, on a commodity based uh, value system. And so it's a really difficult problem we face, but it's one that we kind of created, right? America is a really, is really unique in this sense. And in a cruel way, it seems like we were kind of exporting this, this idea of homeownership to places like China and stuff who are just rapidly taking the torch on and, and doing suburban development in the exact same way. And I don't know, there has to be kind of a fundamental correction and, and also a recognition that, this all happened incredibly fast. It's not like someone means tested this before the war. It was, you know, post-war housing policy was really, it was a panic. It was a, it was a concern that we were going to slip back into a great depression. And there was this huge housing demand. And it was in some ways a a vision of a kind of utopia that we're going to build this middle class through homeownership, but there wasn't really a lot of thought. I mean, you might know better than me. There wasn't really a lot of thought in thinking about like, uh, you know, what is this, what is this going to look like 50, 60 years from now? It's funny because you can go back and read critics at the time who were predicting what it would look like. They were very right on, but like you said, the concerns at the time were, you know, how do we not go back into depression? How do we make use of these great resources we have of the, you know, the new invention of the automobile and the abundant oil and how do we create a middle class? And, I think I've reconciled because you you're a decade younger than me. I think I'm 46. You're, uh, 36. yeah. There's always this tension that you have with a generation ahead of you, um, where you you know second guess them, and then there's always this kind of confusion you have about the generation behind you. I've kind of reconciled with the boomers um, that I don't know as I would have been any different in their place. I've kind of reconciled that maybe this just abundance of resources we had at this one moment in time was going to manifest in this crazy way. I think the challenge becomes now, how do you, how do we get that generation, uh, you know, Jimmy's generation uh, to, to take the next step, which is, okay, I see how this was wrong. I see how this was unfair. I see how this is not working. I'm ready to, to make a change. And I think that blast part is the hard part, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, it's in part why I made the film is the hope to, it's really unfortunate, but you know, the film by and large has had a really incredible amount of support for what little marketing is behind it. And like, for example, next in the next two months, we're going to, we're going to screen in the DC black film festival. And we're also going to film in Sheridan, Wyoming film festival. That's a really great encapsulation of the kind of broad coalition that's getting behind the film. But at the same time, I'm also getting a lot of like really, uh, 
disingenuous trolley response from people online who are clearly not even seeing the movie, but they're seeing the trailer and just getting immediately very defensive, you know, because like I was saying earlier, it's like no one likes to feel like they got a handout. And it's not to say that people didn't work hard to get where they are. But I mean, I think the conundrum that you're speaking of is really, it's really the fight for the future of the country, which is what do you do once you reconcile with this reality? Like, what do you do with that information? And I think some people altruistically, like, like they just get over it and we, we, we press full speed ahead on trying to figure out how to fix it. And other people really just hunker down and get super defensive and it's just not productive and it, it starts to metastasize in really, really bad ways. But yeah, I don't know. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta get past that, that deeply, uh, human instinct to just be defensive. Uh, can I ask you a couple of technical questions? Sure. I am not a film critic. I'm an engineer. I, I'm not going to claim I have an eye for this stuff, but I do love going to the movies and I do love a good film and I, I feel like over time I've become pretty good at gauging like what is a beautifully put together film and what is not. Um, this feels like a beautiful film. Just the, the, the shots that you've taken, uh, the great care that you took in capturing certain angles. I'm guessing you shot some of this stuff with drone footage. Talk a little bit about the eye for that and how important that is to telling this story as well. Cause this, this is not like a documentary of people sitting around tables. This is a very vivid portrait of, uh, of some unique places. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Cause I never get to talk about the actual film. <laughs> if you're going to make a documentary or a film of any kind, but specifically a documentary, that's about issues. I think the first question you have to ask yourself is why should this be a movie and not like a book or an article? right? Filmmaking is obviously inherently a, a visual medium. And I think going back to that, that moment when I was taking the photographs of those abandoned McMansions in Inland Empire, I, the reason I felt it had to be a film is because I really wanted to hopefully get people to, to capture that alienation, that sense of anxiety in film and see the sort of mindlessness of the system and, and, one of the ways to do that was through drone photography. I think that, you know, the film opens and closes with this, this insane development in South Florida that I came across. I, get, I should have given Google earth like a co-producer credit, because <laughs> I yeah. Have done it. Yeah. But, but just spending an inordinate amount of time looking on Google earth imagery at suburban developments. And I came across this, this crazy development that had been abandoned in South Florida just south of St. Petersburg. And it's just this one house, this one house sitting in this very large cul-de-sac development where the streets were paved and all the plots were carved out, but only one house was built. <laughs> and I was like, God, what, what an incredibly poetic sort of image. And I thought like, if you can't, if you can't look at that one image, because you know, a lot of this is, you can, you can tell people you know, data points till the cows come home. But at the end of the day, for people to really make a change, it has to feel emotional. And there was something really profound in that, in that image of that house, just sitting in a sea of empty cul-de-sacs and grass overgrown weeds that like, if, if that doesn't hit you in the gut, then like, I don't know what will. And then I have to say to toot your horn, you gave us a really great, you gave us a really great 
beautiful story about, you know, cornfields versus, versus rainforests that really fit beautifully over that shot. And that's one thing that, um, we get time and time again, is people just love how the film concludes with, with, with that combination. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's, that was my perspective in shooting this film. Every time we were shooting a home or a neighborhood or stuff is like, how can we, how can, how can we make you feel the system? Something that typically feels invisible. And that also means like the use, we use a lot of archival footage from, you know, marketing, home, home marketing throughout the years. So, you know, fifties era commercials about vacuum cleaners and all that sort of stuff. And, and in a way like the, the American dream plays itself in the film through this barrage of, uh, of marketing media. So it's just, yeah, it was like a way of like, how can we feel these systems that otherwise feel very invisible? How can we bring those to life? I did not know how the film would end. That was quite a treat and uh, gave me some shivers too. Cause I remember us having that. Uh, that was the second time you came out and met with me and yeah. Yeah. I, I want to tell this story cause I want people to know the great care that went into this. We did a, basically an interview shot. So you recorded me doing different things and in different places, but you had me sit down once and just talk. And we did that in the, the gerbil run, the uh, skyway in Rochester, Minnesota, <laughs> when I was down there, you had, you know, you had me sit down and you, you mic'd me up and you were getting all the light. We probably talked for 45 minutes and we probably spent an hour getting the lighting and the sound and everything else right. And I remember sitting there going, okay, these guys clearly know what they're doing. Cause I'd been with you at that point, like three days. And I'm like, these guys are really good at what they do. They clearly know what they're doing, but my God, will they ever finish a movie if we have to take an <laughs> hour to like adjust, readjust, re-readjust, change this, change that. And you were all was so uptight about it. And, <laughs> and then I watched the movie and I'm like, oh, that's why that that's, that's why, because it's got to be perfect. And it, it just, I think scene after scene after scene and the attention to detail and just the, the, the beautiful mixing of stuff. This is a well-produced film. It's a really, really well-produced film. Well, thank you very much. And I have to say it, it's, it, it's only as good as the people in it. And, and you were a big figure and making me think about this larger sort of systemic questions. So thank you for being a part of it. It's funny on Amazon, uh, my wife pointed out, cause I, I told her like, you know, look at this. And she pointed out to me that the film, <laughs> it actually says starring and it oh, has, yeah. I, I'm listed in, <laughs> in the credits it is actually because I have a book coming out, I'm in their system. Right. So you can actually click, if you click on me, it says that I starred in this documentary film, which uh, my wife and kids were like, yeah, dad, you're not, you're not that important. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, I have to say too, just on a side note, I thought you might find this really interesting. I wanted to ask you about this, but one of the things in the film of yours that, that we have in there is this, um, is the calculation you talk about, about, you know, what it costs to build a road and how it gets paid back and this sort of Ponzi scheme of, of, of real estate development. And, I looked up after we we finished the film. I was like, I wonder what the real estate taxes are for Levittown. I mean, it's like the first suburban development. And do you know how much they pay? These are keep in mind, like these are like a thousand square foot homes. Do you know how much the average? I want to fact check this, but this is two years ago that I remember looking this up. But it's like 
$30,000 a year in property tax. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Uh And if that, if that doesn't prove your point, you know, I don't know what, what does, because Uh it's like, ah, you see the legacy there, you know, like, and, and it's why the homes there are, they're only going to be as valuable as, as that, as that real estate. Right. Right. That's crazy. I know you and I chatted offline about December. Are we ready to to announce that? Because I would like to. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm... Okay, I'm, let me go for it then. You've never watched this film with a group of Strong Towns people, right? Oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> I, I have, and I got to tell you, there's cheering, there's you know howling, there's clapping. They can really get into this. I got a chance to watch it with Strong Towns people. It was a trip. It was so much fun. On December 5th in Santa Ana, California, Giorgio is going to join us uh, for a screening of this film. Uh, we are going to be in Santa Ana that day doing a Strong Towns gathering, which it, more information to come on how you can get signed up and registered for that. But we're going to have this open to the public. Uh, you don't have to be at the gathering to come to the film. We're going to have Giorgio there. We're going to ask him some questions. Uh, let the audience ask him some questions. We're going to watch this film together. And uh, it's going to be a raucous fun time. And I'm buying popcorn for everyone. So uh, this is going to be super fun. Giorgio, uh, Great. you'll be there. Yeah. And, uh, and we're going to have a good time. You, you'll enjoy this experience with the Strong Towns people. They love this film. Maybe I'll compel uh, Jim, the realtor, to come up from San Diego. Oh, man. If we could somehow make that happen, that would be a ton of fun. I, I promise it would be a good time. Yeah, I'm sure he'd love to be there. Yeah, okay. Let's let's talk further. The movie is Owned A Tale of Two Americas. You can watch it anywhere films are streaming right now. You can go to their website, ownedfilm.com, and get more information and, uh, and, and plan to be in Santa Ana on December 5th and take part in this with us. Giorgio Angelini, it has been fantastic to catch up with you. Thanks so much for taking the time and and for doing the work to put in this great film together. Thanks, my friend. Thank you so much. Hey, I'll talk to you soon. All right, right on. Hey, thank you, man. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. And thank you all for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns.
Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.